Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Japanese stocks have hit their highest level in 33 years, with markets closing in on record highs seen in the 1980s. Are Japanese stocks finally about to escape the shadow of the bubble? I want to know what's behind the rally and if it has further to run. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a value trap? Okay, let's get into it. So when the Japanese market peaked at the height of the bubble in 1989, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, East and West Germany were separate countries, and I was just three years old. So Romin, for my whole life, Japan's basically been in a bear market. But wait, now it's going up again. Is it different this time? You were three? Jesus. God, I feel old. That's the irony, though. You don't feel old. That's what my great aunt always used to say. The tragedy is you don't think like an old person. You just have an old body, which is unfortunate. I saw a review of our podcast, one of the only negative ones I've seen, which said, this is just some young guy selling shit jokes to some old guy pretending to find them funny. And I was like, Roman's not that old. Steady. (laughs) (laughs) So this has got to be one of the longest drawdowns in history. You know, after so many years, after that crazy peak in the 80s, you were finally seeing the stocks recover. And... There's a lot of hope built into this still, I think. And it's all centred on corporate governance. So, you know, it seems like we talk about governance a lot, but it is important. It's just that it's very difficult to quantify or see whether it really makes a big difference. And it is just a matter of hope, I think, which is driving this rally. There's very little tangible evidence, I think, which is unequivocal, which shows that corporate governance improvements are going to suddenly make earnings growth improve for these companies. Oh, interesting. Well, let's come on to that. Just for a bit of context for where we are. So there's two main indices which look at the Japanese market. So there's the Topics and the Nikkei 225 index, and they're both up between 16 and 20% so far this year. And now the Topics, for example, is just 25% away from that 1989 peak. So, you know, still a bit of room to run. Can I just say that the Nikkei is not a proper index? What's wrong with the Nikkei? It's price-weighted. So that really doesn't qualify as a proper index. Are you going to allow the topics? Oh yeah, the topics is market cap weighted. It's like the Dow Jones, you know, that's not a proper index. Anyway, look, very strong rally so far this year. No question, doesn't depend on the index. And I think some people look at it and think, certainly compared to the US, it looks relatively undervalued. So the forward price to earnings ratio in Japan is around 13.6. Whereas in the US, for example, it's 18.5. So is some of this investors looking for undervalued markets where they can get more bang for their buck, so to speak. Yeah, and I think Japan's interesting because it doesn't have the geopolitical risk that goes with China, although clearly it would be suffering from the fallout if China did do something crazy. But Japan is seen as a kind of safe haven where valuations are low. And, you know, every five years or so, someone comes out with a story that says, oh, Japan's going to be the next new thing. And, you know, there's just a trail of destruction of previous fund managers who've said, yeah, this is it. It's going to rally. And then it doesn't. And it is a very odd market in terms of how it reacts and also its kind of composition. The reason why I say that is because if you look at one of the large indices, say the topics, a lot of it is multinational companies which export a lot of their stuff outside Japan. As a result, the value of the yen makes a big difference to those companies. Now, what typically happens is if the yen weakens, their products look cheaper, the stocks rally, 
But because of the counteracting effect of the weakening currency, if you're buying in sterling or dollars, then you lose that benefit. This is one of the weird things about Japan, which is that it's probably worth getting a hedged version of an equity index for that reason. Purely because of the way the yen behaves and is a safe currency in some ways. Yeah, it's a safe currency and it has a negative correlation with its stock indices. Whereas for the UK, for example, you don't see that, or for the US for that matter. Yeah, so for the UK, we've got a trash indices and a trash currency. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think why Japan sort of hit the headlines over the last six weeks or so, part of it is the Warren Buffett effect. So he went to Japan for the first time in, I think it was like 13 years, and really talked up his investments there. And what he's doing is really interesting. I think, you know, he just sees opportunities everywhere. And he always says this, he always says, well, it's kind of like Berkshire Hathaway. You know, if I look at this company, it does everything just like we do. And I understand the company. And you can see what he's saying. I mean, if you look at some of the involvement in terms of industries for some of these companies in Japan, it's just almost everything, you know, from commodities to just normal retail tech. So what he's done is invest in the five largest Japanese trading houses they're called and like you say they're conglomerates which are in all sorts of different industries and what he actually did on his 90th birthday in 2020 he bought a five percent stake in each of those trading houses and that's worth more than six billion at the time quite a birthday present to himself isn't it yeah and it's generated really good returns i think the total average return is something like over 120 percent almost 130 And what he announced last month was that he's raised those stakes from 5% to 7.4%. And this is in companies including Mitsubishi and the others I'm going to have to leave you to pronounce, Romin. Okay, so it's Mitsui, Itochu, Marubeni and Sumitomo. And he had a nice quote actually of why he invested. So Buffett said, I just thought these were big companies. They were companies that I generally understood what they did, somewhat similar to Berkshire in that they owned lots of different interests. And they were selling at what I thought was a ridiculous price, particularly the price compared to the interest rates prevailing at that time. When Buffett's saying something's at a ridiculous price and he's a value investor, probably worth keeping an eye on, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, if he sees value in it, he's definitely researched it to the hilt. So, yeah. And if I look at the MSCI Japan index, there the price to book ratio for Japan is ridiculously low. It's 1.3 times book value. Yeah, I saw an analyst at Goldman Sachs, I watched an interview, and he said half of all publicly traded companies in Japan are below book value. Compare that with MSCI World, and the price to book value is 2.9. So a huge difference, you know, 1.3 versus 2.9. I mean, what Buffett's doing, which is quite interesting, is he's really tapping the Japanese debt market to raise really cheap money. Because you look around the world, there's not much cheap money left. Only Japan really has low interest rates now. So Berkshire has nearly $8 billion worth of outstanding yen bonds, and their average coupon is just 1%, and it sold a further 1.2 billion yen bonds this year. So it's kind of taking that cheap money as leverage and then buying high-dividend-yield Japanese stocks. It's quite a clever trade, really, isn't it? Beautiful. And if you look at the Japanese yield curve, yeah, at the short end, it's still negative. So you've still got minus 0.12% for the one-year yield in Japan. You compare that with all the other developed markets, And all of them are above, say, 3.3%. It's kind of crazy that Buffett still comes up with these unique trades in his 90s, right? He's not really done this kind of thing in Japan before. He's still doing new stuff. And he's always learning. You know, he never stops. And that's what I love about him. 
You should think he'd just be doubling down on his railways and his Apple investment and all that. But no, he's out there scouring the world. It'll be real loss when he goes, I think. You know, it's going to be really tough to follow him. I mean, a lot of people are trying to follow him. So if you look at the net flows into Japanese stocks from foreign investors, in April alone, that was over $15 billion. So the money is really starting to flow into Japan. Yeah, I just think that by the time it reaches a podcast like ours, it's probably (laughs) too late. No, we're cutting edge. (laughs) But that is the worry that, you know, once you get somebody like Warren Buffett going into the market, they drive the markets higher because, firstly, he bought, right? Immediately there was a response to the shares when he bought. Yeah. And now everybody's following suit. Yeah, those trading companies rallied by about 5% just in the immediate aftermath of his announcement. Just Buffett's involved. Like you say, people trust his opinion, so the stock goes up. There's a really good Warren Buffett quote about this very thing, which is his three eyes. He says, first come the innovators, and these people see opportunities that others don't. Clearly, that's Warren Buffett. Then come the imitators who copy the innovators, and we're seeing flows into Japan right now. And then come the idiots. I just hope I'm in the middle category. (laughs) So I'd just be careful about these kind of flow things because, you know, by the time you see it, it's probably close to the end of the cycle. Just keep an eye on the valuations because if those are still reasonable, you'll be able to see when it becomes kind of unattractive. I mean, there are some things going in favour of Japan right now. So its market has the highest level of share buybacks it's ever had. There was a record $71 billion of share buybacks in the last financial year. And it's typically been a market where people think the Japanese companies are very conservative, risk averse, they hoard cash, they don't invest properly. And the sort of payout ratio, the money they're returning to investors through share buybacks and dividends is not good enough. But that seems to be changing. And there's a lot of push for reform in Japan. And in the US, a lot of the return over the last decade or more has been due to these buybacks. Certainly, if you look about 10 years ago, the only country where buybacks were a significant contributor to stock returns was the US. It almost didn't happen elsewhere. But now we're seeing that spread to other markets. And even the dividend yield, so the money they're literally paying out to shareholders. If you go back to 2013, 14, 15, it was significantly below the US percentage. But now it's significantly above. For the last three years, I can see it's maybe 30 or 40% above the payout ratio in the US. So the dividend yield at the moment is about 2.5% for Japan versus 2.1% for MSCI World. And in the US, it's barely above 1.5%. Yeah, they're very stingy when it comes to dividends in the US for tax reasons. But I think this whole idea of giving value back to shareholders is a big departure for Japan. It used to be the case that you'd have a job for life and, you know, if you were one of these salary men, then you were kind of sorted. Whereas in the US, it's completely brutal. You know, if you look at what happened during the pandemic, they immediately laid off staff. There was no remorse, right? It was just like carte blanche firing. Whereas in the UK, we had the opposite approach, which is we were trying to get people furloughed and the government paid out for that. So we didn't have a spike in unemployment, whereas in the US, it was phenomenal. And I think that Japan is probably moving more that way, which is good for shareholders, not so good if you're someone in Japan. Yeah, I think it's recognised, isn't it, that there's generally been a mismatch between the interests of management and the staff in the companies and the shareholders. So like you say, the culture in Japanese companies has been for people to sort of rise up the ladder in the ranks internally, and therefore when they reach the board level or whatever, 
maybe they're still favoring worker compensation over shareholders, which as you say, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing depends on whether you're a shareholder or a worker, probably. But also the sort of structure of the market is interesting in Japan. They had a real issue with what are called cross-shareholding. So like all the big companies owned bits of the other big companies and were therefore kind of incentivized not to compete properly with each other or try and put each other out of business. You know, it was a very strange market structure. So these conglomerates, which are kind of entangled with one another in Japan, are known as keiretsu. Again, fantastic Japanese pronunciation. I won't tell anyone, you just Googled the pronunciation. Yeah, we just Googled it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there's kind of an issue in a way, which goes all the way back to the end of the war, where in the late 1940s, after the war, Japanese companies had to take out bank loans to survive. That meant their debt to asset ratio went really high in the 1950s, over 60% compared to most other countries, which was below 30%. And therefore, the companies ended up struggling to pay off this debt. And what they ended up doing was sort of exchanging it for equity. So the banks kind of became major shareholders in the big Japanese listed companies. And if you look at it, the share of listed companies in Japan that were owned by financial institutions went from just 10% after the war to almost 50% by the end of the 80s and the peak of the bubble. And what that meant when you got banks owning a lot of the companies is that obviously they're going to prioritize interest payments and repaying the debt rather than investing for growth and shareholder returns, right? But the other problem with it is that if there is a problem, a financial problem, which there was in the 1990s, you know, if the banks suffer, everybody suffers. It's really difficult to break out of that loop because of the entanglement. So I think that's one of the problems that kind of compounded their bubble popping. I mean, the bubble popping was so crazy because it is maybe the biggest bubble of all time because it was combined, wasn't it? It was obviously the stock market, but also the property market was insane in Japan at that time. The stat that everybody loves is if you just look at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, it was apparently worth more than California. Was in all the land in California? Everything. Beverly Hills, the lot. All the in and out burgers. <laughs> That's what I value most, obviously. Carl's Jr. was also very good. But it is crazy, isn't it? Like, How does a bubble get that big where you can just see on the face of it, it's insane? Well, the same thing kind of happened in the US recently. So this is one of the triple bubbles that Jeremy Grantham's been talking about recently. And, you know, real estate is one of them. It was inflated by very low interest rates. And you've got the stock market as well and bonds. So if the three of them become overvalued together, which arguably has happened in Japan as well, you can see how this synchronized triple bubble popping is particularly bad. But in the 80s, it was just off the scale in Japan. It was on a whole nother level, the size of that bubble. Yeah, and the valuations, all of the graphs of price to earnings you look at for Japan, they have to kind of cut off the top of the graph because the valuations were so high. And it was largely due to re-rating. It wasn't because they were generating more profit. It was because they were paying more for the existing profit. I mean, that's kind of the definition of a bubble, isn't it? Yeah. And that euphoria was fueled pretty much by the government because the government was saying all these things about how they were going to transform the economy and industry. But, you know, that never materialised, or at least not completely. It's still the case that Japanese companies are absolutely huge. So to first order, if you look at the Japanese market, the Japanese stock market, the factors to which it's tilted, which I think is a great way to understand a market, is large caps. So it's got more large caps than the global indices and low volatility. So boringness and largeness is their unique selling proposition. 
So low volatility is also interesting because whereas in the US, a lot of this return, which has been generated by mega cap tech, has come with a lot of volatility, particularly after the crashy period in 2022. Whereas in Japan, you get a pretty good risk adjusted return. It's just the returns have been awful for a long time. You can risk adjust it all you want. The returns have been terrible. (laughs) Yeah, the numerator matters. (laughs) So if we go back to 1994, MSCI Japan's only returned 1.5%, whereas MSCI World, 7.8%. So that's why it's cheap, because it's underperformed for so long, whereas earnings growth has been okay, not great. And I think everyone is now focused on these corporate governance reforms, which you mentioned at the start. So the Tokyo Stock Exchange sent a letter to over 3,000 companies that are listed on the exchange, and it called for a stronger focus on share price and capital efficiency. And it said to about half the companies who, as we said, their share price is below book value, and that includes big names like Toyota and Mitsubishi, it said it wants to see a concrete action plan. And it did actually threaten delisting in a few years' time if the companies didn't raise their share price to a certain level, which is, you know, Big talk. Whether they actually would follow through on that, I don't know. So shape up or ship out. It's interesting. There is a Japanese index, which is the JPX Nikkei 400, where explicitly they review the contents of the index. And corporate governance is one of the criteria. So they look at things like return on equity over the last three years, cumulative operating profit, but also these qualitative factors like corporate governance and disclosure, just working out exactly what's going on at the company is quite a good idea, I think. Yeah, it feels like the kind of market where quality factor tilt would be a way to go. So it has returned a little bit more than an k 400, not a huge amount, but a bit more. And I think in Japan, it's been a long process over the last decade to try and up the kind of governance standards in their companies. So if you go back to 2015, half of companies listed in Japan had no independent directors whatsoever, which seems incredible, right? But then there was a real focus on it. And just two years later, by 2017, 90% of companies had at least two independent directors. So it changed quickly when there was a political pressure on it. And the other thing people cite is the level of insider ownership at companies. Now, what does that mean? So often, especially in the US, companies will reward and incentivize their staff by giving them stock awards and grants if they hit certain performance targets, which kind of aligns them with shareholders because you all want the price to go up of the stock if you own it. But that wasn't really the culture at all in Japan. In fact, in 2013, there were only four companies out of 500 in the topics index which had any form of stock-based compensation. But now that's risen dramatically, and I think almost all do now. So there has been genuine corporate governance reform. It isn't just pie in the sky. And it's the largest companies doing it. For example, Hitachi has done a lot of these changes. It's got outside directors. It's got a nomination committee. It's got performance-based compensation. Sony's done similar changes. So has Nissan. So as you say, I think it is something which is changing, albeit slowly. But these cultural changes do take a long time. It's just reassuring to see that it is happening, though, as an investor. But there's also macroeconomic factors at play, isn't there, which might make Japan attractive. What's been on every investor's mind over the last 18 months is inflation. And inflation in Japan is quite a bit lower than in the rest of the world. So success for them actually means getting inflation. Yeah. Whereas the rest of the world, you know, they're battling these inflation fires. (laughs) You know, Japan's trying to ignite one. But why is that? Well, I think for a long time, demographics was one of the things that was blamed for it. Japan's had a zero immigration policy and very low fertility rates. 
So there were just less Japanese people, you know, buying stuff and doing stuff. It does have the world's oldest population. I read that there are almost 20 million Japanese people aged over 75, which is around 15% of the population. A very high dependency ratio. And as you know, Michael, if you've got a young baby, a toddler now... You spend a shitload of money. (laughs) (laughs) You have to buy all those things you never realised a baby needed. I mean, if you look at GDP, it really isn't very far above where it was in 1997. There hasn't been that much growth or inflation. So some people see Japan as the future of all developed markets. People often talk about Japanification of the whole world as if it's a terrible thing. But I think, you know, we should just get used to the idea that growth will probably be lower once GDP growth slows down as population growth slows down. What are you saying? Except that you're poorer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have to have Hugh Pill on. Yeah. But if you look at inflation in Japan right now, their core CPI is 3.4%, which I think the rest of the world is pretty jealous of, 3.4%, nothing too concerning, a bit above the 2% target. But then as you say, it's been zero or negative a lot of the time over the last two decades. So they're kind of happy and they're not about to start tightening their monetary policy. At least that's what the central bank says. And they just have a new central bank governor in charge. So if you look at stock market valuation versus inflation, it's kind of like a Mexican hat where the peak of the hat is around 3%. This was one of the early jokes, wasn't it, Michael? It's been a long time since you talked about the Mexican hat. Yeah, it's a bell curve. (laughs) But the peak of the hat, you know, the best valuations happen when inflation's around 3 or 4%. As we approach that sweet spot, perhaps that's responsible for some of the re-rating of the stocks to higher price-to-earnings multiples. Yeah, if we're entering a higher inflation world where inflation around the world just goes up by, let's say, 3%, that puts Japan in a good position and it puts the rest of the world in a bad position. The new Bank of Japan governor, Kazuo Ueda, really has his work cut out for him because somehow he's got to get out of this situation of yield curve control, where essentially the Bank of Japan just keeps yields capped below a certain rate, for example, for their 10-year government bonds. So how does it do that? How does it cap the yield? It just buys a lot of bonds. So at a certain point, I think you'd own more than 100% of some of the Japanese government bonds because some of them are actually lent out. So bought them back more than once. Where's it getting all this money from to buy all the bonds? It makes it out of thin air. This is how central banks work. So I think that's a very odd situation. And also, if you look at the debt to GDP ratio in Japan, it's crazily high. It's over 200%, isn't it? It's over 260%, almost 270 Only Venezuela, I think, has a higher one. So they better hope that interest rates stay low then. This is the problem. You know, how are they going to get out of this fix? They've got moribund GDP growth. So growing out of it is going to be a problem. Inflation's low. So inflation's not going to help them. Yeah, but hang on. You just said the central bank owns all the debt. So they owe it to themselves. What does it matter? <laughs> and this is how they've managed to keep it going. But ultimately, I think the problem is that debt to GDP does have to come down. Why? It's not causing any problems, is it? Not yet. And you can keep these things going for a long time. Uh, It's just a question of how is it going to end? Is it going to end abruptly or is it going to be gradual? But it would be a much bigger problem if they owed the money to foreign investors. But they largely don't. Yeah, that's right. So if it's domestically owned, it's not such a big problem. Italy was also lucky in that regard because a lot of its debt was owned by Italians. 
And it still remains attractive for Italians. In fact, on Pensioncraft, we had a question recently from a guy who's based in Italy who was saying, should I buy Italian government bonds? And they do have a very good yield. They're very tax efficient. Japan's in a similar situation where domestically owned debt, lots of it's owned by the central bank, which can just print more money. I would argue Japan is in a very different situation from Italy in that Japan controls its own currency, whereas Italy doesn't. Yep, that is a huge difference. And Stephanie Kelton would agree with you. So they can keep this going for a long time. At a certain point, though, they've got to keep it stable. They can't let it get, you know, to a thousand or ten thousand percent the debt. I remember a few years ago, people were saying the danger zone was going over 100% of GDP. There was a famous paper, which I think they got their Excel formulas wrong and didn't prove what they thought they proved. But anyway, people thought there was this hard limit at 100% of GDP for debt. But it turns out there isn't. So who's to say what the limit is? But I'm just being like devil's advocate here. No, I think you're right. I think unless there's something that's going to trigger a crisis, there isn't one. And Japan's a really good example of that. And people were saying, you know, if you have a lot of money printing, then it's going to cause hyperinflation. Well, Japan was always there as an example of a country where that just didn't happen. They could do with some stronger growth, though. There's no denying that, right? Their GDP figures came out last week, and they showed that for the first quarter, GDP growth was twice as fast on an annualized basis as was forecast. I mean, it was only 1.6%. Still, for Japan, it's picked up. But the question is, what's the next party trick out of Japan? You know, they were great for these very advanced industrial manufacturing processes. They had very reliable cars, which everybody wants to buy. Now we've got the electric revolution where there are lots of new manufacturers. And Japan doesn't really have a huge, attractive set of offerings in that space. They're they're behind the curve. I think they kind of bet on hydrogen and hybrids a bit more than other countries did. Which is not the way it seems to be going. So the question is, where's the next industrial leap going to be? If it's in AI, it's not coming out of Japan. If it's in robotics, perhaps that'll be their edge. You know, maybe it'll be robotics having some kind of physical presence for AI, which comes out of Japan. But again, there are other companies which are competing for them and eating their lunch. South Korea, for example, is very innovative. It's got a very buzzy kind of economy and very well-educated populace. So I think, you know, there are lots of countries ready to compete with them in the same space. So I just don't know where the next party trick is going to come from for Japan to try and pull themselves out of this growth slump. I think that's true, isn't it, in the long term? I mean, in the short term, what people tend to be looking at, as you mentioned earlier, actually, is China's reopening and maybe a boost in demand from China. And if you look at Japanese companies, around 22% of their exports go to China. So it's a big market for them. And I've heard some people say they're investing in Japan because they want to sort of benefit from China's reopening, but without the political risk that comes with Chinese companies. So it's a kind of circular, weird way of playing the trade. But this has been a very common trade, which is if you want to benefit from China's growth, but with a developed market economy, you'd either invest in Australia, which is selling their dirt to China, or you'd go for Japan, which is selling a lot of tech to China. And I think it's one reason why luxury goods manufacturers in Europe and France in particular have rallied so much over the last year is that their biggest market is China. So we've just seen China exports of cars exceed those from Japan. So 1.07 million vehicles in the first three months of the year. So that's just the first quarter. And that's up 58% compared to the first quarter of 2022. So they're really ramping up this value added industrial manufacturer in China. 
whereas Japan's vehicle exports were just 954,000. And that's only up 6% from a year earlier. So slower growth, and now China's overtaken them. Interestingly, a lot of those exports from China, the car exports, were boosted by demand for electric cars and sales to Russia. Right. (laughs) Sanctions busting. Yeah. And us. We just bought one from SAIC, although Laura says, don't tell anyone it's a Chinese car. Tell them it's MG. It's MG and you're not under sanctions anyway, as far as I know. I mean, maybe let's wrap up this whole thing by asking Romin, are you going to follow Warren Buffett and invest in Japan or at least overweight Japan in your portfolio somehow? If I could do the thing he's doing, which is to borrow locally at a very low rate and then buy something which offers a higher dividend yield, yeah, I think I probably would do that. But I can't. So I think, you know, I've still got one fund in my core. I'm not going to fiddle around with that. Fund portfolio, there's more fun out there, right? So I'd go for something a bit more exciting, like beating up growth stocks or regional banks in the US, you know, that kind of thing. Japan is just too boring to be fun. I can't see it in this new light. So I mentioned a conversation about Italian government bonds, and that was in our community Now, we discuss all kinds of investment topics. And if you want to join that conversation, you can learn more about that by going to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is a simple one. What is a value trap? So this is when an investor is kind of drawn in by a low valuation. So if all you look at is how much the price to book value is or how much the price to earnings is for a company you will pick out companies which are distressed and on the way down and may not make it back up. So this is the idea that they're cheap for a reason. Like it might have a really low price to earnings ratio, which could be an opportunity if you're a value investor, or it could just be you're buying into a failing company. Well, cheap for a reason and the reason won't go away. That's the problem. Yeah. And I think this is one of the reasons why I bought US banking stocks after they crashed. And I went for a kind of broad index. I didn't go for the regional index because, you know, will the US still have banks in 10 years time? Yeah. And the valuations being pushed down by what's happening in regional banks? Yes. And it ultimately will recover. So I'm willing to wait, you know, five years for that to happen. But that's something which will rebound. Whereas what you've got to be careful about are sectors and companies which won't actually fix the problem ever. So, for example, some companies get behind the curve when it comes to cultural changes. Blockbuster is one example that people think about. Another one might be Kodak, where people were just using their cameras to take pictures. So I think if you do fall behind, you're going to go through this phase where your valuation is low and you're not going to recover unless the management is going to change the culture of the company and their business. Because if earnings are on a long-term perpetual decline... It doesn't matter how cheap it is, right? It's going to go bankrupt eventually. I think one of the important things is when you're looking at a company and deciding, is a certain metric cheap? You've really got to be careful about what you're using as like the peers to compare it with. If you're just comparing it with the broad market, I don't think that makes a lot of sense, right? You've got to compare it with other companies in that sector. And ideally, it's competitors. And you've got to compare it to its own history. Has it managed to turn around in the past? Has it adapted in the past? And this applies to the country level as well. So, for example, Italy is looking pretty cheap right now. The forward price to earnings is something like eight times, which is very low. But if you look at the return from Italian stocks over the last 25 years, it's been around 1.4%. So essentially, this is a stock market which hasn't moved for over two decades. So, yes, it's cheap. 
But you've got to think, well, will it turn around? And this is what worries me about Japan as well, which is, you know, I'm not convinced that it can turn its culture around 180 degrees to suddenly generate better earnings growth. And if the boost in the short term is just coming from them returning more of their stored cash to shareholders, that can give a short term boost, right? But it's not a sustainable thing. It is like the last puff of the cigar. This is what Warren Buffett started off doing when he was buying stocks early on. And I guess the other thing when you're looking at whether a company looks cheap is which metric are you using? Nowadays, you get so many of these kind of bogus metrics like adjusted earnings, right? And uh, EBITDA, which they really can be manipulated by accounting to make something look cheap or expensive or however management wants it to look. And management itself can be misleading. So if you just parachute in some successful managers to a failing company, maybe they can turn it around. Maybe you can have a private equity company that comes in and, and improves the company, improves the management. But it doesn't always work. And if you just rely on that kind of marquee management or famous investors, it doesn't necessarily mean that company's going to turn around. I mean, just to wrap this up, I almost wonder that are value traps even a real thing, right? If we believe that generally markets are efficient and they're kind of pricing in the expected growth of company earnings over time, surely every company should more or less be at the price they deserve. Or as, as Warren Buffett said earlier, sometimes things are just at a ridiculous price. I think that's true. But ultimately, it takes a while for the market to figure things out. So even though the value of the company might be zero, <laughs> it can take the market a while to work it out. So that's true. And unfortunately, there are lots of bag holders who are going to suffer as a result because they still held the faith when markets were just realising that, no, actually, this is all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, that's interesting, because I think some people do think that when they buy a company that's cheap, like it's got really low price to earnings ratio or whatever. Like Bed Bath & Beyond. Yeah, that they're kind of protected because they think, oh, I can't fall any further, surely, right? It can't go any lower. It's so cheap already. So I've only got upside. And look how high it was last year. Yeah, but, you know, it can go to zero quite easily. So that kind of mentality where you can just see where it was two years ago, or if it's a meme stock, where it was, you know, a few months ago. That can be very misleading. Certainly wasn't the case of Bed Bath & Beyond. Who went bankrupt last month. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.